Welcome to part two of my conversation with Madhra Temwa Mahendran. If you haven't already listened to part one, I recommend that you go back to that episode and play it first, as this is the second half of a very powerful and beautiful conversation that we shared. I hope that you enjoy. Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. You deserve to have the space to share your longings and to have them heard. Yes, and that fear that holds people back from stepping into the worthiness to go back to the first definition that you had shared in the definitions of love. Mm. Am I correct in remembering that you said that fear is us protecting love? Anger. We love? Oh no, anger. What was fear? Fear wasn't in there, but you tell me what fear is. Because it feels to me like fear is bound up in love too. Fear is afraid of losing something that won't be replaced. Yeah. Fear is is having exposed all the places where love may not be. And what if we had to confront that? Mm-hmm. How would you define fear in the scope of its relation to love? Yeah, I think fear can be an indicator of something that we care about, something that we love, something that we've invested in, particularly if that's a fear around something being taken away. I think at the end of the day, fear for me signals investment. You're invested in a particular story, in a particular person, in a particular dynamic. Even if it's not quote unquote good or quote unquote healthy, you're invested. You are bound up in this in a way that any sort of change threatens that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes fear is linked to love. And I think other times fear is linked to attachment and like all of these kind of other pieces that surround our understandings of of love and our embodiments of of love but at the end of the day i think it's it's a signal it's a it's something to pay attention to because it's not neutral it is trying to tell you something and then this goes back to what are the stories that we tell about our fear right mm-hmm. like is this the kind of fear that's like oh no we're getting close to your core like i've been taught to protect what's at your core I've been taught not to reveal that. I've been taught not to let anything close to that. So I'm scared. Or is this the kind of fear that comes from an instinct that this is not for you? This is not healthy for you. This is actually something that you need to keep distance from this. So that's more of like a protective, that a protective instinct that isn't rooted in projection. Because I think sometimes we think we're protecting against something, but we're actually like projecting a fear or like a doomsday scenario or whatever it is, or you're trying to protect somebody else from something that actually scares you, but not them. So there's also kind of that (laughs) dynamic. That makes sense. And it makes sense to me that there would be, especially around fear, a lot of interconnection of different types of fear where there's an opportunity to go deeper and potentially unravel and then discover is what you thought the fear was what it really is or is what you think your fear is protecting you from or what you are invested in that signal that's being given is that true because I think you're absolutely right that 
I could imagine in a workplace facilitated situation where people are in a overdrive workaholic sort of mode, not stopping to even see themselves or think about their own physical needs. I could imagine that there's a, a fear of scarcity around risk of losing their job or underperforming. And that's not to say that underneath that fear, there might not actually be a greater desire to be co-creating in some other way and not knowing if that's possible, mm -hmm. which is love in disguise in both ways. Because I feel like, and, and I might be way off here because I feel like you've gone so deep into this work. So I feel like I'm here as a student learning about, about, <clears throat> excuse me, love as a vehicle from you. And I can't help but see that, yeah, that in all of these scenarios, people really are trying to, they really, there's something that they are trying to honor or support or keep alive, even if the ways that we end up in these places can be really confusing. And especially when you bring in the intersection with power, it can get very dynamic let alone oppressive, but yeah. anyway, I feel like I'm, I'm on a little ramble. <laughs> no, I mean, like what I heard in, in what you shared there is even despite the fear in my work around mortality and conversations around mortality as mortal beings, like one of the qualities of being mortal is how connected we are to our to eros or our like sense of aliveness and that life force energy and even despite all of the fear programmed or not like realistic or kind of fabricated we still even in the most dire circumstances are connected to that and will fight for that life force energy and when we see it like that when when we see it in somebody else like we're activated sometimes it's triggering because it's that it, you see in somebody what you want but you can't have or you feel like you can't have or access but other right. times it's like how many times have you like walked down the streets seen somebody like smile to themselves and you're, you're like it activates something in you and I think part of the work that I do and part of my practice is to bring us back home to that aliveness because the systems that we've built aren't built to sustain life, like human life, more than human life, the life of the earth. And I think going back to, you know, when you start practicing in ways that feel aligned with your body, that feel aligned with where you come from and your lineage, that feel aligned with kind of the rhythms of the planet, it's really hard to go back. Once you've tapped into your natural pace of working, once you've tapped into the kind of work and the kind of relationship and the kind of conflict that feels generative, it's really hard to, to settle for something else. And if you do, you are deeply aware of the cost, which yes. you know, can be hard if you're kind of stuck in that scenario. But this goes back to like the, the role of rage when you are very aware of what is being lost or what is being violated you are more likely to push back and demand a different reality. 
And this is why rage is pathologized, because when people tap into that rage, when they are connected to their internal no, when they understand when something is being violated, they will push back. Like that is a core part of, like that's a survival instinct. So yes. I think there is something to the, we remember our eros very quickly when it's mirrored back to us or when there's containers for that to be accessed. And then we also actively suppress that eros because we're told that it's not appropriate for work or you're, you're having too much fun for this to be work or this is too easy for it to be work. Like work needs to be hard. Work needs to be grueling. Work needs to be, basically you must be miserable if you're like having a time, like that's not work. Yeah. Or you're even not dressed for work, right? Yeah. Like I think about that in the Zoom era of of working where you might not feel, yeah, you could easily yeah. look at somebody and say, oh, are you even taking your work seriously because of how you present, says I in my <laughs> tear-stained beach cover-up. <laughs> yeah. And again, like work is also like similar to love and similar to love, like work is a neutral term. And if we're thinking about love as a form of sweet labor, like love is also work. What do you wear to show up to love? You know, like yes. if we start asking those questions, like it, it, this is not like nobody will ever work. We're going to be vegetables forever and not do anything. Like, I think rest is important and we should have time and space for that, but it's more examining, like, what have we told ourselves is worthy labor? What is labor that we prize, that we value, that we resource and that we need and comparing that to what is the work that we are paying for, the work that we are hiring people for, the work, the work that we're spending our time on. And again, noticing the discrepancies and asking what, why? Yes. <laughs> or where did we go wrong? I'm curious to hear about the role of privilege as is reflected back to you by your clients mm. and whether you particularly when we're talking about love and fear and work and all of the other emotions that are wrapped up in the ways in which we protect or reveal or show our investment in in our love and our labor have you encountered people because you meet people where they're at i'm curious whether somebody who's not in a in a place where they've been able to fully mobilize around what makes them feel alive what connects them to their eros or love or life force? Has anybody turned that around and brought up privilege? And if so, how have you navigated that? For sure. I think privilege is embedded to be able to bring me on to do the work that I do. There is often, you often have to have a level of privilege because for better better for me worse maybe for others I have realized that my work is worth a lot more than I used to charge so it it does not come cheap there are kind of ways in which I make my work accessible like dismantling the master's tools and making that a resource available for for free but I think by way of being able to bring me on to do the work that that I do like there is a level of privilege and it comes up in several ways there's often moments during our my journey with the people that I work with that there's like guilt shows up 
around, I get to pay to be able to do this work. And in that, that comes with not wanting to talk about it with other people, because it's almost like you have this nice thing. And if you talk about it, then like other people will know that you have this nice thing and you already feel guilty about doing a thing that is supposed to be good for you, but you feel bad about it. And I think in that, like that is a valid reaction to have given that we live in the systems that we do. What's important to realize in that is your guilt is the desired response for the systems that we live in. The fact Mm -hmm. that you're doing something that feels good for you and you feel guilty about it is exactly how the system wants you to feel. The fact that you don't want to talk about it, the fact that you don't want to share the story of the impact that it's having on you, the fact that you're having this wonderful experience and you're having it in isolation is exactly what the system wants. First of all, it doesn't want you to feel good. But if you do feel good, it doesn't want you to feel good about feeling good. And if you do feel good about feeling good, it doesn't want you to go out and tell the story because then, like I said, there are more living embodied examples of we can work in different ways. And then there's also, so that's one response, the guilt. And then there's another also programmed response around scarcity. So it's like, I am experienced seeing this like good thing, somehow I've secured funding for me to kind of experience this transformative experience. But there's only so much of this to go around. So I need to kind of protect it because if I start telling people, they'll ask for it too. And particularly within nonprofit, but also within corporate, like then then there won't be enough resources and then I won't get to do this good work that I that feels good anymore. So there's like a hoarding of yes resources. I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's, which again is exactly what the system wants. You have a good thing, but you, whether you're told or not, you immediately assume that it's a scarce resource. Mm -hmm. And rather than having the response of this feels really good. Like, how do I push, like use my experience as a way of pushing for more people to have this? we go into, there's only so much of this to go around. So I need to hold on to, and I'm lucky to have found it. So I need to hold on to it. Yeah. Guilty and defensive. Guilty and defensive. And then the last piece that kind of feeds into all of this is imposter syndrome. So like you're, you've somehow convinced yourself that you're not worthy of this experience that you're getting of this support that you're getting, but you also are kind of waiting to be found out. You're you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're kind of like someone's going to realize that this is not that I'm doing this thing that 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 isn't like legit or this way of moving isn't rigorous within academia. There's a lot of yes. that, right? Yes. So I think between, you know, guilt, scarcity, imposter syndrome, even when we're experiencing something that is life affirming, you have these things choking at you the whole time and all of that can be privilege can be an excuse to privilege can be a story that you wrap around all of that but it's not I don't see that as the most life-affirming story to tell around it because it actually requires more courage to say I had the privilege of having this experience I'm going to talk about it I'm going to advocate for more people on my team to have access to it. I'm going to give them space to not only experience this, but to actually integrate 
It's not like, okay, everybody gets a workshop for two hours. Your life's going to change. And then we're going to go back to, to the, the day to day. Yeah. And I think that's why with every people usually bring me on to facilitate some sort of experience. So the biggest ones so far have been retreats. The longest ones have been like around a week long and they, they call it a retreat because within the world of work that we live in, a retreat is, is basically the only way you can justify some sort of rest. Right. Uh, and retreats aren't actually retreats. They're it, typically there. How do we bring people in and basically be like, we've got your needs covered. Now we're going to take, we're going to extract everything we need from you. And you're going to leave this retreat feeling more kind of taken from than filled up. And we need to get as much bang for our buck because this is a treat. Like we're treating you and therefore you owe us all of like your entire presence and then some and also keep working on the side. And write a report about the retreat so that and, we can actually measure the KPI or not the KPIs. Yeah, but like justify, yeah. justify that that us spending on your well-being was worthy. So inherent in that messaging is your well-being alone is not worthy of being resourced. We need you to like produce outcomes so that mm-hmm. we can justify investing in your well-being. So I think going back to people bringing me on to facilitate these experiences that they think are we're we're making you accessible to more people my part of how i go into it is okay you want to retreat what you want to accomplish at this retreat is going to be short lived if it just happens at the retreat so what does it look like to engage in a practice before the retreat what does it look like to engage in a relationship building process where every person that's showing up to this retreat has consented too. Because I think sometimes we think we're gifting people an experience. And if that gift is not experienced as a gift, then it's not a gift. It's coming with a sense of obligation. And you're thinking you're gifting, but people feel extracted from. So I think part of kind of dismantling truly a lot of the fragility we have around the privilege that we hold is Mm -hmm. in that practice. So in that practice, it takes different forms, but the most frequent one that I've done is people get an email in their inbox every morning. There is kind of some sort of art that opens it. There's a little preamble for me. And then there's a question around. So like with one of the retreats that I facilitated, one of the questions was around indulgence. What is your relationship to indulgence? And that specifically came out of one of our conversations where one of the team members was sharing, like, I really want to do this week-long retreat to begin with to begin like a longer project process, but it kind of feels indulgent to spend this much money upfront. And we talked through it, but I think what that revealed was, oh, here's the system cropping up again. We know that we're craving the space at the beginning to be generative, to think, to have this collaborative space in a retreat form, but already our like voices and the program voices are coming up being like, "Mm, isn't that too indulgent? Like, are you worthy of that? Like, how are you going to justify that? Yeah. So took that in. And one of the prompts was around what is your relationship to indulgence? And what I do is I share some like, quote unquote, dictionary definitions of it. So that helps people ground in. Because sometimes we think we have a relationship to a word, but we don't even know what it means. Like, it's just kind of what we've internalized. Yes, that's right. Um, so I share those definitions. And then I share a bunch of sub questions around growing up, like what 
what was your relationship to indulgent? Who, who was rewarded for indulging? Who was punished for indulging? How much is too much for you? Like, when have you felt satiation? Like, these are things that, like, we are fed the narrative of indulgence is bad, doing anything that, that is beyond kind of the traditional confines of work is indulgent, but we haven't really questioned it. So these, the practice, the role of the practice is to start to like unravel and like look behind the curtain and you don't have to do anything about it. Just look. And if that moves something in you and you want to honor that, then go for it. But I think we're so scared of the looking, like we're so scared of what we might find. And again, that's a designed response. We're designed to scare, to, to be scared. Mm-hmm. what we might find so that we don't go looking because if we go looking we'll find likely alternatives that might suit us better which will mean we will want to dismantle what currently exists that's preventing us from from getting there but even in that practice like it's I, there's musical accompaniments there's memes sometimes that I include there's poetry like this work doesn't need to be like shameful it doesn't shame might come up but it doesn't need to be like a punishment you know just because you have privilege doesn't mean you need to suffer like we don't need more suffering in the world we need more accountability we need more people to be courageous and kind of look with that privilege you can afford to look there are some like earlier on in my career I couldn't take the risks that I'm able to take now but the fact that I have the privilege means that I need to take the risks Because if I keep waiting for like, oh, maybe when I have more privilege, I'll take the risk. Like, that's how we've gotten here. Right. Right. Like recognizing when you're no longer in the same place that you were and noticing like, how much more risk can I actually take on? Not because I'm a martyr, but because this is my accountability to the desired future that I want to get to. Because I think then we also get into the martyr narrative of like, oh, look at all this stuff that I'm doing for you and all these people so that. I can like lift them up and all that. No, no, no. You're doing it for you because this way of working is actually serving you to be better. And you can see that because of the privilege that you have. So how do you like expand the playground and increase the share of those resources in a way that helps move in the direction of that desired future? I think that makes a lot of sense. One thing I notice as you're describing this process and this dismantling and what's coming up, you know, not just what you have, the terrain that you've already navigated to then be facilitating this, but for the participants who receive your your love and labor, or I guess labor is a part of love, it seems to me like a huge part of what you do is being present. I feel how present you are. and. I'm wondering how, when you work with individuals or groups, how do you support people to become more present? Because it seems to me like presence is one of those first steps to then actually being able to look at your shame or look at your guilt or look at whatever those other pieces are that then come up as we start unraveling what's holding us tight in in some kind of an uncomfortable circumstance. Do you think about that in a structured way or in a formal way? So several things. I think one, you're you're on the nose in terms of kind of presence being a key part of 
the practice and key part of like readiness to engage in this work. I think one thing that has really shaped how I invite people into shared space with me is actually something that my friend Fatima put into words for me, where she said, being loved by you can be really scary because I know that in your presence, I'm only surrounded by myself. And that can be a scary thing, like to be only surrounded by yourself, to be in your own presence while in the presence of somebody else. One, it's fairly, it's rare within the world that we live in. And two, all the, the only thing you have to do is contend with yourself. And that is a scary or can be a scary or at least overwhelming task. So I know that my presence in a room invites people into that space. And I don't take that lightly. Like that is a scary, that can be a scary place to be. At the very least, it's a vulnerable place to be. Mm -hmm. So I think I don't go in with the expectation of like, okay, now like bear your soul because it is, I, I, again, I don't know what it's like to be them, but I have had my presence reflected back to me enough times to kind of know what I'm inviting them into. Right. So I think there's that. I think a lot of being present can feel risky. Like when, when what you're used to is chaos, peace can actually feel really threatening. So I think calibrating to the nervous systems in the room, like there are nervous systems for whom like you've just been programmed into so much chaos that when things settle, that's when you feel the most activated. That's mm -hmm. when you feel like you need to run because what you're used to is running. Chaos feels more like peace than peace does. So I think yes. in that moment, when I'm inviting people into presence, I try to give them anchors. And I think for me, the biggest anchor is our body. Like we have the most profound presencing tool in our breath. We have it in like just even how weight moves through our body. Like something as simple as like where there is enough of a level of trust and comfort. Something as simple as like pressing down on somebody's shoulders or like pressing their feet into the ground. So one, like touch can be presencing when it feels safe mm -hmm. to and when it's consensual, but also just like feeling your feet in the ground. And even as we're doing some sort of like embodied or somatic practice, the number of times I have to be like, oh, and remember to breathe. And then you like notice the bodies do the thing yes. because we forget because even when we're in the container of an embodied exercise, our brain so quickly are trying to make sense of like, am I doing it right? Like, what is this for? Like, where is she going with this? Like, how do I look to other people? So I think I also try to account for that. I invite people to close their eyes. Mm -hmm. So that way, like one of the senses is kind of muted so that you're, you're paying more attention to like the kind of rise and fall of your chest or the tingling in your fingers or the way your weight is pushing into the ground. So I think the body for me has been a really helpful presencing tool. And it's it's one that everybody has, right? Yes. And it's one that you don't need to, you don't need a budget for body. I mean, you need a budget to take care of the body, but you don't need to like bring in props. We have it. That's right. Um, 
And I think going back to the remembering, Mm -hmm. how quickly bodies start to remember when they're given space to is wild. And I think that usually tends to be a starting point. And I, and I reflect things back like, oh, your voice sped up when you're saying this thing, or there's a time during like a, a group workshop where I was like, okay, I'm noticing that the bodies are doing like the crunching and the stretching, like, let's take a break. And someone came up to me after, she was like, I didn't even realize I was fidgeting. Like, I didn't realize I was doing like the, the shifting and the stretching or that my back was hurting. They're like, how did you know what I didn't know? But it's not because I knew, know your body better than, than me. I'm more practiced in looking at, looking for those things. Like that is now an immediate cue that I'm registering. Yeah. And I think that comes from practice. That's not like an innate skill. So inviting people into becoming more fluent in the language of our bodies. We're so fluent in the language of the brain, but our body can also speak. And what I found is that the more... I pay attention to it, the more of its vocabulary that I learn, the more clear it is with its messaging. And it's no longer like whispering, like, maybe you want to do this, or maybe you don't want to do it. It's very much like, all right, if we're not doing this, I'm out. Like it's my tolerance for when I eat, how much I sleep, when I move myself physically out of situations, the kind of energies that I allow into my sphere, all of that I'm way more sensitive to now because I've honed my capacity to listen and when you listen it speaks and I think there's a whole range of consequences to that but I think most of them have been have benefited me I feel so inspired hearing you describe this and like this is just such an invitation even personally I feel the invitation to create more presence in my body and space for that and so I'm sure anybody listening is feeling that too are there any really as you said, you know, we're so conditioned into our brains and easily distractible. And I've had, I've had the privilege of experiences like Vipassana where you go, you know, I went on a 10 day silent meditation retreat where you are forced to be present in your body and experience that. And yet I know that when I step into my everyday life and whether it's chaos or whether it's seeking to control or whether it's simply trying to take care of the things that need to get done in a day. And I think that could apply to so many different circumstances, independent from whether someone's experienced a profound trauma or not. I think our brains really do quickly take over and we think we intellectually understand and get confused with thinking about something versus doing it. Do you have one really simple practice that you would recommend for anybody listening or myself included who would want to begin to ground into our bodies to feel that aliveness? Recognizing that this is a much bigger journey for all of us, obviously. Yeah. I guess what I will ground my response to that in is a word that you just said, which is practice. And, you know, I've used that word again and again, and I'll define or I'll offer a definition of practice that Sindolo Diamina uses. And they talk about practice as practice is your center. What do you do repeatedly because it's life-giving and what can you offer from that place? And I think that definition of what do you do repeatedly because it's life-giving 
is kind of where I would invite people to look for that grounding practice because I think it it needs to be something that taps into eros it needs to be something that is life-giving if you're like oh fuck I need to do this like that is that's not a place that is going to be sustainable for you to kind of engage in again and again so I think it can be something as simple as stepping outside and just turning your face up to the sun and taking a breath and if you do that every time you step outside like that is a practice like that is grounding there is something that so I am taking tango lessons and it's teaching me a whole bunch about I thought I was a good listener and then you learn tango and you're like oh there's so much (laughs) to learn because you don't speak at all but you're speaking the whole time but there's something about like one of the things that I've been practicing is when you're off balance one of our tendencies is to shift from side to side to try and you, you, you kind of move off to one side or the other to try and regain your balance and what they teach you in tango and I imagine other dances as well get taller and stronger in your core taller in your spine and stronger in your core and initially like my brain registered and I was like yeah but like that's not you I always I've had you know almost 30 years of going side to side so as much as it sounds poetic I'm like no 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 that's not how it works but then I tried it and initially my instinct like the next time I was off balance I was going side to side and the side to side actually wasn't steadying me so I was like whatever let me just try this thing I got stronger in my core and got taller in my spine and lo and behold like it works one data point that this alternative way of moving and and balancing is possible and then I did it again and then I did it again and now even when I'm walking I'm like prone to tripping I do it all the time so just like noticing that so much of it is in my core like so much of my scent my actual center but also for me like intuition lives in my core uh it lives in my gut my deepest knowings live in my gut so I think even something like that like that takes what that that happens in the moment you don't even have to carve out time for it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whenever you feel off balance and for me tango is a metaphor for life so I think even when we feel like unbalanced in our values or off kilter from our values I think the tendency is to kind of go side to side whatever way you're being pulled but what does it look like to feel into your core like where did that value originate like what is the lineage like what what are its roots feel into its roots and get taller and stronger in your core. And I think something as simple as that, it needs to have meaning for you. There needs to be, I think this is why ritual is so yummy is because you're not doing it because you have to, you're doing it because there's a sense of fulfillment in the doing. It's not about the checkbox. It's the fact that you're doing it brings richness. It brings meaning. It brings life. So I think less what the actual thing is more what do you want to do repeatedly because it's life-giving and what do you already do repeatedly because it's life-giving it's a really powerful invitation to actually take an inventory of what what are we doing repeatedly every day every week every month Mm -hmm. and what of those things are life-giving and what are not and where can we actually swap something out that isn't necessary or isn't serving us to then yeah. add in something that really would be expansive yeah. in the core. I love, I find that so powerful. 
this, this has been amazing. <laughs> Is there anything else that you had wanted to share while we were having this conversation before we wrap up? There's so much richness here. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we could do a mini series, but given the time that we have today. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think one of the things that I had kind of written down in response to one of your questions around my relationship to my inner knowing, my intuition, I've said this word before in this episode, but around discernment, like intuition is like love, a neutral word, and it can also be weaponized. So I think, I, I think one of the most common questions like starters that I have is what is your relationship to Bex? Mm -hmm. And, and that helps me think about everything as a relationship. And I think mm -hmm. with intuition, you can most definitely have an extractive relationship with your intuition. Yeah. You can also cultivate a reciprocal relationship to your intuition. But I think part of dismantling the master's tools for me is looking at the ways in which we embody those systems every day, even with the things that are meant to serve us. So the narrative around intuition is it's meant to serve your highest good. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it is a neutral tool that you can use either way. So thinking about like if you're in relation, if intuition is a person and you're in relationship with it, if you're kind of like ignoring them for most of the time and you're like, okay, I really need guidance on this thing. I'm freaking the fuck out. Like I really <laughs> need to like know yes or no. Okay. Like intuition, like are you ready? Okay, go like tell me. I'm going to close my eyes and do a little meditation. I never meditate any other time, but like, I'm going to, I'm going to do the thing now. And I need you to like, tell me. And, and then, you know, three months later, you have another crisis and you're kind of like, all right, intuition, we're back. Like we like turn on the engine. Like we, we need to get going versus having a relationship where you, you show up to it. It is part of your practice. You're cultivating a relationship to it where you're showing up to it whether you need something from it or not, because you understand that you are moving through life together. This is a tool in your toolkit. This is a partner. Thinking about your intuition as a partnership, the more I pay attention to it, the more I understand it, the better I can love it. And the more time we spend together, the more my intuition is tapped into how the rest of me moves. And so we can kind of cultivate that relationship to, together. So I think the the part of me that is kind of conditioned with that dismantling mindset always wants to kind of keep in mind that everything is neutral, but we are not neutral. Like intuition is neutral. Love is neutral. All of these things are neutral, but we put the spin on them that we need in a moment. So I think what I would want to kind of leave folks, including myself with is being conscious of that relationship to your inner knowing, to your intuition. Like, what is the self-talk? Like, even because we're not saying it out loud, but what is the self-talk yeah. around it? What is the self-talk when it serves us? What is the self-talk when it doesn't? Are we feeding it in the way that it needs to be fed? Are we nourishing it? And also when something, when it does kind of give of itself and share guidance, how do we acknowledge that? Is it like, Oh, it's, it's open now. The channel's open. Give me as much as you, like, as much as you got, give me all the guidance, like all the downloads. What about her? What about them? Like, tell me everything yeah. you need to know. Like, I think this goes back to your episode around intuitive boundaries as well. 
but even and, and all good relationships have boundaries around what feels good and what doesn't and all good relationships examine those boundaries regularly to make sure like is this still serving you is this still not so I think I would invite building a, a relationship in the truest sense of that word with your intuition thank you I love that I, I couldn't have said it better myself but what you're saying just you are speaking the truth as I've experienced it, cultivating my own intuition. And as you mentioned, because you know about my journey, it has been a really deep practice. And I think it's such a powerful reminder, especially for people who don't feel like they have that history of relationship with their inner knowing or who have been doing some healing work or doing some examining of the forces in their lives and where they want to ground in all of that. I think that's such an incredible starting place. And that then we also, because these things are neutral, even though we're not neutral, for people to actually then give themselves so much love and grace around cultivating that relationship and looking at the history and looking at understanding how they came to be in this current relationship with their intuition. And I'm saying this for people who really don't feel like they have a deep, strong practice with their intuition yet, because there is a history there. And if you, if we can witness it and understand it and show it some, some awareness, then I think we can bring love into it to then cultivate I always, I always refer to my practice, like one of my core values for life right now is playful practice. And I hold that so dearly. And so your definition around practice really resonates and aligns for me. And I feel like if people can allow themselves all of that grace to see where they've come from and how they've landed in the current place that they are in relation to their intuition, then they can invite in this gentle, playful practice that does bring some life without all of those harsh yeah. voices, which are painful and not necessarily serving that relationship. And I think going back to where we started and pulling on a thread that you just shared around, particularly if we've had a difficult relationship with cultivating our inner knowing, or if that's kind of been a dormant relationship over a long period of time, I think it's really, really important, or I've found it really important within my experience to start to ask questions around your lineage and the relationship that people in your lineage have had with their intuition. And that doesn't need to be generations, generations ago. It could just be your parents, right? Like people within your, your direct family who are still alive. Because for me, I think into the sight of intuition is our bodies and our bodies come like are so informed by ancestry. So maybe, you know, you've never had anything, any beef with intuition. You've never had any experience with it. You're, you, you believe that you're neutral around it, but you might've had a parent who put a bunch of their trust on an instinct. They made a decision based on an instinct that they felt very strongly about. And that decision didn't serve them. And now a bunch of their story is wound up in that decision and the ways in which they were quote unquote betrayed by intuition that mm -hmm. will have an impact on you because either because that had an impact on their body and you were kind of incubated through their body or through some of that genetic material 
or impulse, but also because that story is probably wound up in your upbringing in direct ways or indirect ways. And I think we don't realize how much we absorb from our upbringing, our environment. And also because we've been taught that our stories begin when we're born. Like this goes back to that linear hero's journey. Like when you arrive, the show begins. And when you leave, the show ends. And I think if we start to think about we are existing in a moment, like truly a moment in time, and we come from a place and we're part of a larger story, think one, there's humility that comes with that. But it also means you ask more questions, but an entirely different realm of questions you can tap into and be like, right, I'm experiencing this. This doesn't feel like I have context around it, but who can I ask Mm -hmm. around me that might be able to provide that? And I think if you're hearing conviction in my voice, it's because so much of my own story has like the whole, like, make it make sense thing. Like for me, my lineage has made it make sense for me in ways that me as an island could not have. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. We keep trying to close this conversation. I know. I'm the worst. I I never end. Like I do the long goodbye. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do. Like I just feel wistful. Mm -hmm. I feel wistful and so grateful. And maybe I need to sit with that and look at it. I mean, there's there's grief in it too, right? There is grief in it. I feel actually a lot of grief around it. I've spent some time thinking about it, but I haven't spent time being with it, if you know what I mean. So... Yeah, so I thank you. I thank you for this this beautiful journey and all of the places that we've been today and for you sharing so openly and with such trust in in sharing your stories and your practices and knowing, I think, knowing, but also trusting in the way that it'll be received, not just by me, but by anyone who's listening. Great. Thank you. I was just going to offer to close in the same way that we opened, because I think we have closed maybe for our brains, but I don't know that our bodies have necessarily closed. I imagine they'll still be processing, but to kind of close this container. Would would you appreciate (laughs) that? Apa mantra. Does that work for you? Thank you. Okay. I'm going to invite us to close our eyes if that feels good. And take some deep breaths. Om Purvasaha Tatsavitum Bargo Devasya Dimahi Dioyona Prachodaya Om Sure.